Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. Hey, everybody. So, in this episode, I am talking to a gentleman by the name of Alex Marcus. Alex is many things, but uh, I guess what brings him to detoxicity is the fact that he is the podcast editor of the pop culture website, popbreak.com. And uh, if that website name rings a bell to you, it is because perhaps the fact that I have written for that website before back in the day might also be because the owner and founder of that website, Bill Botkin, has been on Detoxicity before, and will probably be back again sometime. Uh, Bill's one of my favorite people, and uh, I'm glad that I was able to meet Alex through him. Uh, Alex has experienced quite a bit over the years. Uh, he's grown up a child of divorce. Uh, he survived a diagnosis of a uh, painful bone ailment that has plagued him pretty much for his entire life, and as you'll hear later on in the podcast, caused some pretty significant bullying uh, when he was younger and uh, he's also a an openly gay man and he talks a lot about his struggle to define his sexuality and how that sort of came into play um, he has a really interesting coming out story being the only person in his high school that was out at the time and uh, it, it has been quite the journey Alex and I talk about so many different things everything from Ally McBeal, which is uh, a topic that I never thought would come up on the Detoxicity podcast ever, uh, to his relationship with Christianity and religion in general, to something that I identify quite, uh, uh, quite strongly with, what he calls his propensity to collect people. So uh, check out our chat. I hope you enjoy it. This is a good one. Here's Alex. I'm Alex Marcus. I'm a podcast editor of thepopbreak.com. I'm also a behavioral therapist working with children with autism from New Jersey, and I'm an openly gay man. Awesome. We've obviously interviewed Bill, who runs a pop break on this podcast before. How did you get involved with that? So it's kind of a funny story. I actually met someone named Matt Taylor, who used to be the TV editor for popbreak.com. And we dated for a brief amount of time. We stayed really close friends. And uh, he talked to me about working for the site. And he asked me if I ever wanted to write for it. And I was like, yeah, because I had done some podcasting work for a film podcast that I do with some friends. And so I was excited to get to writing because I hadn't written since college. And uh, I started writing for the site. And he quickly decided he didn't want to be the TV editor anymore. So he asked me his replacement. And then it went from there. That's convenient. 
<laughs> yeah. It's all just like a swipe of Tinder. Just right. changed my life. <laughs> That's awesome. Not in the way I expected it to. <laughs> it too, but strange things happen. It's true, because I would have never met Bill otherwise, and now he's right. such a close friend. And uh, as their TV editor, I started to work on building out their podcast platform. And uh, then I shifted from TV editor to podcast editor to position that I created for myself, basically. And now I'm supervising over a dozen podcasts for the website. So that sounds like a lot of work. It can be a lot of work. Yeah. (laughs) Other people have garage bands where they just go and perform a show once a month with their friends. And that's what podcasting is like for me. So that's awesome. You grew up in New Jersey, but you weren't born in New Jersey. You were born in Staten Island, right? That's correct. Yeah, I read we, the notes. I, <laughs> I lived in Staten Island until I was nine, and then due to my parents' divorce, we moved to Jersey, and I've been there ever okay. since. All right. And people who live in Jersey talk about Jersey in mythical terms. What is it about New Jersey that makes people so faithful to New Jersey? Well, I think there's a little bit of an inferiority complex that people have that causes a sense of loyalty to foster. We're so close to New York City, which is like the center of the world, but yet so far away. So I think that has a lot to do with it. You might be right. I lived in New Jersey for a brief time period, and it does seem like a lot of cities or a lot of states outside of New York all have little brother disease. Absolutely. And New Jersey is weird because the northern half of the state is very New York City oriented and the southern half of the state is very Philadelphia oriented. Right. And then there's the Jersey Shore culture, which runs straight through. So it's, yeah, it's a lot. I, being in college when Jersey Shore hit was not the proudest of moments. <laughs> Now, did you go to college in New Jersey as well, or did you? No, I went to school in New York City, so I lived oh, in Manhattan aha. for four years. <laughs> <laughs> and were people just like, oh, Snooki, is that where you're from? Yeah, there was some definite embarrassing conversations. It was mostly just talking about how I'm actually from pretty close to the Jersey Shore, and all of those people aren't actually from the Jersey Shore. They just go there Ah. in the summertime, and everyone from our area hates people like that in general. So it was easy for me to be like, no, we're not like them. Also, everyone isn't in the mob, because that was the thing growing up. It was always like the Sopranos, right? Not that you want to be known for the Sopranos, but better to be known for the Sopranos than Jersey Jersey Shore. Shore. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, if you you carry some fear with you and people are worried that they might get whacked, that's one thing. But if you're an overtanned buffoon with a blowout, that's a a whole other thing (laughs) entirely. What got you into pop culture? I guess I would say that it's probably the best friend that I've had through my life. (laughs) I have an older sister who's six and a half years older than me. So we had a very parental relationship Mm. with each other, less than the close friends. She always tried to include me as much as she could, but she was in high school when I was a little kid. So it was hard. So a lot of time alone growing up, I, I had a bone disorder. Well, I still have a bone disorder, but as a kid, it was very prominent where I was just fracturing constantly. So I couldn't do sports and I couldn't do gym class and I couldn't go to birthday parties because the boys birthday parties were always sports related so a lot of the time I was alone and I didn't have a lot of friends because I was just always like on cat in casts and on crutches and stuff and also being a queer kid with a effeminate voice made things challenging I had to switch schools a couple of times with the move from Jersey and everything so all of that meant that I didn't have a very robust social life as a kid And so I just would spend my days watching hours and hours of television and going to the movies. My 
parents are divorced and growing up when I did see my dad, it was usually to take me to the movies and that kind of just built in this kind of this habitual relationship with them growing up. And when I'm a kid, I'm seeing the kid movies, but then getting to graduate to those higher levels of movies and, and developing a passion for it. I think all of that really led me to just have a deep, undivided love for pop culture. You just mentioned like three or four separate situations that <laughs> yeah. would make a childhood or adolescence, I guess, more so than childhood, particularly difficult, whether it's having the, the illness. Um, mm-hmm. Did you want to play sports at all and couldn't? Or was it just something you were like, eh, I'm not interested in this anyway, so I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything? I loved baseball growing up. It was my favorite thing for the longest time. I didn't love playing Little League, especially once the kids were allowed to to pitch because then it was very scary. But basically, I was diagnosed with the disorder when I was eight. And so pretty much like right when you would start the process of being more in sports and it be your choice, it was no longer my choice. Because when you're little, you just have to do what your parents say. So I was in a basketball league for a winter and I don't think I ever touched the ball once. And I did little league for a few years in a row. But by the time I was old enough to have made a choice to do it, the choice was already taken away from me. So that was kind of my journey on that. And did you feel any like bitterness or anger or anything like that because that choice was taken away from you? Or were you just kind of like, eh, fuck it, I'll find other, sh- other things to do? I think it was more that it it was just one more thing that set me apart from the other kids. And that was what was hard. And I think as a queer kid who didn't know he was queer yet, I already had that level of distance where it was like not quite like the other kids. And I just remember that being policed by slightly older kids my whole life about what I was allowed to do as a boy and how I was more like a girl because of this, that, or the other thing. And not having a dad around very much and living with just my mom and my older sister, there was a lot of insecurity around that. And I think the sports piece definitely contributed to it as well. But I will say I did like not having to go to gym class because when I was really young, I got to stay in behind in the classroom and just hang out with the teachers and talk to them about their lives. And that was really fun. And then when I was in middle school, they didn't let me do that anymore. They made me sit in the nurse's office. And that was much less fun. But we still got a decent amount of gossip that way. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. So you didn't say the word bullying. I'm going to say the word bullying from (laughs) from older kids was like because you're you're younger than I am. Um, Uh And. I don't know what level of toxic masculinity young men were observing at the time that you were growing up. What was it that those older kids were saying to you? So there was never like physical violence, which I'm happy to say. Yeah, grateful for that too, (laughs) you know. Especially considering my physical condition, it would have been really bad if somebody tried to punch me in the face. But I will say I grew up in the 90s and the 2000s, so everything was gay all the time. I was constantly being called gay and fag. So there was a lot of that. I remember being a little kid and sitting with my legs crossed and one of the older kids on the bus being like, you sit like a girl. That's not how boys sit. You must be a girl. And I remember going home to my mom. I was probably eight years old and being like, what? They said that only boys, like boys don't sit this way. What was wrong with how I was sitting? And she was like, oh, well, when you're an adult, boys can't sit like that. So that's probably why he was saying it. And I was like, what? Okay. And then I remember being in fourth grade and me and my mom, my sister, we loved 
that Shania Twain album that came out in like 2001, right? That everybody loved. And we used to listen to it in the car every day and every line to every word of the song. And I remember saying that I liked her music in school and being like, oh my God, that's for girls. You're so gay, whatever. And then feeling like, oh, I can't let anyone know that I like this music. I can't even listen to it anymore. So there was a lot of that. Yeah, when you're a kid, there's so much pressure to conform and fit in. I hope that it's less the case now than it was when you or I were younger. Yeah. But I wonder if kids realize how how badly they fuck up other kids just <laughs> by being themselves. You can't really blame it on them, right? Because they don't know any better. Or maybe they do. Yeah. I, some kids know better than others. Now that I'm adult and I actually get to work with kids, you definitely see it from a different perspective. And it's all coming from a place of insecurity, which is very relatable. And some of it gets modeled at home. Some of it is regurgitating things that you just hear in the ether. And I think that sort of stuff is probably not as bad as it used to be, which I'm happy to say. But yeah, I mean, I had kids who used to make fun of me for my injuries, too. So I had broke my ankle and... Be, for some reason, the way that the fracture happened, my doctor said I had to keep it elevated even when I was at school. So this was in fourth grade. And this is a pretty new school that I was in because that was the year that we moved. And so I had to walk around with a little stool that I had to carry with me. And then when I would sit down, I have to keep my foot elevated on it. And this one kid would just not let it go. He was just like, this is absolutely ridiculous. There's no reason why he needs to have this. This is so absurd. And he would just constantly complain to the teachers about it as if it was like some sort of weird like infringement on his rights to, I'm sure he grew up to be a Republican, mm. but uh, it was bizarre. And I would get that kind of stuff all the time. When I was in fifth grade, I was actually in a wheelchair for nine months because wow. what was happening was I was breaking a bone in one leg and then going to physical therapy for that. And in physical therapy, fracturing the other leg. So, and that happened like off and on for like a year. And they were finally Holy like, you can't. Shit. Yeah. So they were like, you just have to stop and you're just going to take a break and just go sit in this wheelchair and hopefully it'll give you time to heal and you'll be okay. But we weren't sure what would happen at the end of that. And then actually, while I was in the wheelchair, I broke my wrist and I needed an electric wheelchair for a while, which the kids at school thought was amazing. And I didn't, but that was a fun toy for them. And there's one girl who was my friend, but wasn't always very nice to me. She used to always set the electric wheelchair in reverse when I wasn't looking so that, and at like full speed. So that way I would just like fly backwards into walls when I would try to Holy leave. shit. <laughs> yeah. And there was a whole thing where parents had to be involved because I never told my family what was going on because it was embarrassing for me. And so I didn't want them to know. But another kid told my mom what was going on and my mom just like, lost it. And there was a whole thing. And of course, that kid's parents were more important at the private school that I went to than my family was. So sure. nothing really happened as a result of it. Yeah, Bullying yeah. honestly didn't stop until I came out of the closet when I was 17. <laughs> And then everyone was so afraid of being perceived as homophobic that they immediately stopped making fun of me for being gay. Hey, that's something. It was yeah. really confusing for me. <laughs> so it was like, so it's okay to make fun of me for being gay when you thought I wasn't gay, but now that I am gay, now it's no longer okay for you to make fun of me. I'll never really wrap my head around that. <laughs> The psychology of people, I mean, look, this is a large reason I do this podcast, Alex, is because I don't fucking understand people at all. <laughs> and I feel like by talking to people, I'll get to understand them more. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, what you're describing is so common, but makes no actual sense. 
<laughs> I agree. It doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, it's so crazy. So what was your journey, I guess, through queerness? I've come to realize kind of over the course of my own journey and hearing the journeys of other people that no two paths have been the same. So I'm curious what your queer origin story was. <laughs> It's very revealing to talk about. It's funny. I feel like I had a hard time. So relative to my age, I came out pretty young, right? I was a senior in high school and I was the only person in my school. Not that my school was very large, but I was the only person in my school who was out as gay at that point. And I was the only person in my school the entire four years that I was there that had come out as gay. No one in the years before that had done it either. So, wow. uh, and and it was really kind of like, you might know one other person in a different high school somewhere else that also was gay who had a common friend. So it was very much not something that people felt comfortable doing really until college. So I came out early in that regard, but I feel like I was in really strong denial over it for a long time for a variety of reasons. But one of the biggest reasons was I didn't want the kids who always tease me for being gay to be right about who I was and to know something about me that I didn't know about myself. And there was a lot of anger and resentment around that. I mean, like, it can't be true because those people are terrible and I don't want to make them be correct and have them know something about me that I don't even know. Mm. So that was a real struggle, I think, when I was in high school and I was definitely feeling things and just trying to just like lock it down and not really be honest about it. I, I wonder where the light comes on for everybody. I like to tell people I knew I was queer before I knew what gay was. I knew I was mm -hmm. queer before I knew what sex was. There was something in me and I didn't know what attraction was. I knew I liked boys in a different way than a lot of my friends liked boys and differently than the way people said it was okay to like boys. What I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And putting a name on that gay or queer or whatever it was took some time. And then coming out took a long time after that. But I, I, I'm wondering when the first tinges of realization started to come to you and how did you feel about that? It's easy for me to look back now and be like, oh, that's what was going on there, right? I could think as early as like second and third grade, having boys in the class that I was like, I really want to just be next to them. Like this one kid who would always sit at the front of the line and be like, I just really want to get to the front of the line so I could stand next to him. And it would be really cool to be his friend. I never spoke to him. I didn't really know his personality at all. He wasn't even a cool kid in the class. I didn't actually want to be his friend. I just had a crush on him, but I didn't know how to say <laughs> that. And then as I got older, it was very much like, I would pick the girl in the class that was the most popular pretty girl and say, oh, I have a crush on her. And I'm like, I'm in love with her. And I would be able to use it as a distraction. And then the boys that I actually had crushes on, I would just imagine being with with a girl and then it would make it be okay. Right. right. <laughs> and it's fine because in my fantasy, there's him, but then there's also a girl that's there. So it's not gay. It's totally normal. That's <laughs> how every boy is, right? No, it's not. <laughs> The and the then when I got gymnastics. to high school, <laughs> exactly, it was a brand new context. And so I didn't have the grounding of, oh, this is the popular girl that I'm supposed to like. And so I had to survey the land myself. And I realized there was just no one that I felt that way about. But mm. there were a lot of other people that I felt that way about. And I just kind of pushed those feelings down for a long time. And I tried to have a girlfriend and we dated for a whole summer and we broke up because I was going to have to kiss her and I just really didn't want to. <laughs> Ooh, I relate to that story hard. 
I remember we did movie dates and the whole time, so much anxiety and dread about, am I going to have to do this? Is this going to happen? And even that happened when I was a sophomore in high school and I still wasn't fully okay with admitting to myself what was going on for another two years. So it was very much just kind of, I've gone through a lot of traumatic incidents in my life. So I've, I learned how to compartmentalize things. And so I was just really good at compartmentalizing that part of myself until finally one day I was just like, I just need to be honest about what I'm feeling and at least allow myself to actively entertain it instead of only entertain it in the darkest, most private parts of myself. And as soon as I did, it was like a floodgate opened. And I was like, once I'm allowing myself to feel positively about this, I can't go backwards because this is just who I am and it feels so strong. And that's kind of what happened. And pretty soon after that, like within a week or two of letting myself really just be honest and embrace those feelings, I started telling people close to me. Wow. And I'm assuming you started with your parents. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm wrong. No, definitely not. I had a couple of really close friends that I told first, and I kind of let that be it for about a month or so. And then I told my mom and my sister and my brother-in-law, who was almost my brother-in-law then, but on his way to becoming a brother-in-law. And that was very interesting. My friends were very positive. My friends felt very special that I was trusting them with this information. Sure. And they also felt very excited to know a gay person and they had so many questions to ask. And so that was all very positive. (laughs) That sounds so like, and I understand it because I've certainly been in situations where I was the only, but for in, in, Now thinking in 2022 terms, for somebody to be like, oh, I know a gay person just blows my mind. (laughs) I know. Like, of course, plenty of gay people. You may not (laughs) know that they're gay yet, but a lot of gay people. Yeah. I felt a little bit like the exciting new dog at the dog park because it was constantly (laughs) like they all wanted to know which boys I thought were attractive, who was cute, who wasn't cute and that kind of stuff. And it's like, I'm still the same person that I was a a day ago. Right. But yeah, there was a lot of novelty to that. And then it was a secret because I wasn't telling everyone yet. So then there was a fun sort of novelty to them getting to keep my secret, which, you know, it definitely, (laughs) I have no complaints because everyone was very positive, but there was definitely kind of tokenism that came about very quickly that didn't always feel great. I understand that. So then moving forward to talking to your your relatives, did you grow up in an environment that felt repressive in that respect? Or was well, it just like, okay, <laughs> yeah. So my mom is born and raised Irish Catholic and went to like 12 years of Catholic school and all that stuff. And that was definitely the culture that we were raised in, although kind of complicatedly because she was divorced for most of my life and was really shunned because of that. So Mm -hmm. she had very complicated relationships about religion. And often there was a long period of time where I was the only one who was going to church on a regular basis. When I was 14, 15, 16, we lived up the street from a church and I used to walk to it by myself on Sundays and just go to church because I just really kind of took things very seriously. And so when I was like, this is a part of my culture, this is a part of my identity, I want to honor that. And I want to really embrace that until I kind of just ran up against too many questions that I couldn't get good answers for. And that's when my faith kind of faded. So there was that cultural conservatism, but complicated with my mom's own kind of idiosyncratic nature, which made it so I really didn't know 
what would happen. I certainly had my uncle who I was very close to, but he was very, very conservative and not always the most enlightened person. I'll never really forget about him saying like, you don't have anything personally wrong with gay people. I just think that they should just go live on an island alone and do whatever they want with each other. So that way I don't have to see it. That feels terrible to hear when I'm 17 and living in the closet. So that way I didn't know how my family would respond. And the way my mom responded was basically just to say, I don't care if that's true. I don't know if it is because how could you really know? because you haven't been with anybody. But if that's how you feel, that's fine. I love you anyway, but I, I don't want you to tell anyone because I don't want this to hurt you. And if people know, they could use it against you. So you shouldn't say anything to anyone. And that became a struggle for a number of years in our relationship, that kind of tension. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I guess flashing forward, how have those difficulties resolved themselves or have they resolved themselves? They have. For the most part, I was benefited by the fact that the world changed pretty rapidly in when I was in my 20s. And I think that really helped my mom feel better about things, seeing that gay people can exist and have normal lives and be respected and loved and have families and not be persecuted at their jobs. Not that that stuff doesn't happen. It definitely does. And I have lots of complicated feelings about all of that. Right. But I think that the world that she was coming from, it was much more of sort of connotation. It was one more bad thing that someone had to go through. And if you could protect yourself by not going through it, then of course you should. It seemed common sense to her. And I think that as the world changed, she changed with it, which I'm very grateful for. That's awesome. As much as Ellen is not the nicest, best person in the world, as we've learned, she was my mom's favorite talk show host for many years. And I honestly do genuinely think that she helped my mom be more open to gay people in a way that I couldn't personally. So I, I owe her that. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to be the best role model to be a role model. Absolutely. Like this year for Pride, my mom bought me a canvas bag that was Pride rainbow colored. So that way, when I go to the food store, I have a bag. And it's such a tiny little thing. But like 15 years ago, my mom would That's never, ever, step. ever done that. So yeah. it was very meaningful to me. Go mom. I love that. <laughs> I love that. You've mentioned in, in the notes before that you've struggled with depression and anxiety for most of your adult life. I'm wondering yes. if that ties in specifically to your sexual orientation. Is that separate? Yeah, I, I think anxiety is just something that runs in my family that I have a natural predisposition towards, both in inherited ways and then learned coping ways. I think my queerness was difficult as I was going through it. And now as an adult trying to navigate complicated waters, it can also be a point of stress and tension, mm -hmm. but it's always been the least complicated part of my life in a lot of ways, because I've had to unfortunately go through a lot of traumatic things in my childhood and my young adulthood. And because of that, I think that queerness weirdly has helped me, I think, in certain ways, because it has made me have a capacity for understanding and a sense of belonging that is outside of my immediate community that I think has really helped me along the way. Community is a thing that I, I talk about a lot, not just on this podcast, but in general. For me, it's really important to have a community. And I don't necessarily mean a community in terms of people who share my sexual orientation or people who share mm -hmm. my ethnicity or whatever, because that's sort of a, a misnomer. Just because someone looks like you or they have the same romantic interests as you doesn't mean that they're going to be the same as you. But for me, community just means people who are unconditionally accepting and loving regardless of 
who they are and what they do in their private lives or, or what they look like. But I'm curious what community means to you, because it's, it's obviously something that's important to you as well. Yeah, I think for me, it is in some way an opportunity to kind of come together around a shared sense of identity, a shared sense of values, a shared sense of experience. But in another way, like I came from such a kind of fractured family situation. My mom is the second of three wives that my father had. And I have half siblings and never really had the chance to have a relationship with. And so there's always been a tension of like, I don't really feel like I belong in any particular place. And I always wanted to have that sense of community as this opportunity to build a sh- like a found family almost. And so I feel like I kind of collect people from different experiences <laughs> and hold on to them. And that really helps me have that thing I always wanted, which was that big, warm, accepting family. And I think a lot of adults have to really make that for themselves. And I definitely feel like I'm one of them. And I think the tension of adulthood is everybody scatters off into the wind and you pick up people along the way. And so it's hard to get that feeling of everybody being together in one place in one time. And I think that when I go into a queer space, I get a small piece of that feeling that I don't get to have elsewhere. Like I remember when I was 18 and I went to a gay club in Manhattan for the first time, just this incredible sense of, oh my God, like I'm not the only one anymore. It just felt so incredible. And whenever I go to a space like that, that's how I feel. And I feel like where I live in New Jersey, it's hard to have that sense of community as much as I want. And I feel like the internet gives me that a little bit too. I follow a lot of queer people on Twitter and that really gives me a sense of community and what we're building on with the pop break also kind of gives me that similar feeling. So all of that I think is, is important. But I also, I'm a person who I no longer have faith in a higher power. So I really have faith in people. And I believe that if there isn't someone out there looking out for you, that you have to look out for each other. And because of that, I've really dedicated my life to, to service and to helping other people And I think that is part of that same quest for community as well. You bring up some interesting stuff here, particularly with regards to faith. You said you grew up Irish Catholic and into your teens, you were devout, at least in terms of going to church on a regular basis when members of your immediate family were not. I wonder when the break happened, you had mentioned that you just weren't getting answers to questions? Was there a specific question or a specific answer that you were looking for? Or was it a gradual kind of like stuff's not adding up here type of situation? (laughs) It was a combination of both things. I went through a period of three or four years of because when you grow up in that situation, right, especially I went to Catholic school as a younger kid and and it was just like, this is just true, right? There's a God who is watching you that you pray to and it's very literal and very specific mm. and you have to give up something on Lent and if you break that, God is watching and you feel very ashamed of what you did. And so there was this really strong sense of this is the way that the universe works and it's like you're rewarded if you do the right thing, but it's impossible to do the right thing. And so there's a lot of shame. And and I think over time, just meeting so many different types of people, like I, I a big thing that I really struggled with was I went to school with a lot of friends who were Jewish and who were a Hindu and who were Muslim. And just the idea of, well, what happens to those people that doesn't really seem right or fair? And then as I 
learned more about anthropology and the way that societies develop. It's like, well, we all know that the Greek gods are fake and the Roman gods are fake and the Native American gods aren't real. But then suddenly one day we just figured it out and it was completely right, even though ours (laughs) developed in the exact same way that all these others did. That doesn't make any sense. And I battled with that for a long time and I didn't want to let go of it because it felt like an important part of who I was. And accepting that I was gay was the last straw where I literally very kind of melodramatically used to wear a crucifix around my neck. And the week that I decided that this was real and this is who I was and I wasn't going to change, I took the crucifix off my neck and I put it on a shelf and I never wore it again. And that was the moment of where I just turned my back on it for good. Why am I struggling so hard to make this community be mine when they don't even want me at all? Right. What I you said you were good being really dramatic, and the picture that I had in my head was of you looking in the mirror and snatching the the, the crucifix <laughs> off of your neck and throwing it in the distance. Yeah, well, no, I, I didn't so, break the chain because I still have respect for jewelry. So, but that's got to be a rough. I, and I think the reason that some people hold on so long to their religious beliefs even though logic dictates that some of the basic tenets of of Catholicism, religion in general, are clearly false. I think people are so afraid of the unknown. And even though this isn't real, it's something that they know, or they think they know. And letting go of that is really, I mean, that is a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. Letting go of the idea that you've had your whole childhood of this being the natural order of things is a huge leap of faith, but I think it's a necessary leap of faith. And I'm not 100% anti-religion, I'm like 95% anti-religion. The way that I always talk about it is that if this helps you and it's not hurting anyone else, then that's what you should do. And I have no judgment towards that, but it doesn't help me. And it's hard for me to look past all the ways that it hurts other people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what brings you happiness? What takes the place, I guess, of what some people would go to church and mm-hmm. do that kind of thing? I love going on hikes and going on long walks in nature. I love being around bodies of water. All of those things just really have a strong pull on me. Like, I don't believe that there's like a spiritual connection to nature. Like, that there's not a mysticism behind it. But I just like the feeling of being out in the world connected to something. It's the same reason why I love being in Manhattan. And everyone else thinks I'm insane. But I just love that when you're on the street of New York City, like, every type of person is there right in front of you. The whole world is right there happening around you. And when you live in the suburbs, it's so easy to just be locked inside your own experience. When you're living in New York City, it's impossible. You have to contend with it. Yeah, there might be an unhoused person that you have to walk past every day, but you are walking past it. You're acknowledging it. You have to honor the fact that that's a way that people are living in the world and contend Mm. with that when you're living and you're just getting into your car and driving to work and then driving home you don't have to see anything that you don't want to see and that makes you be much more sheltered and so I feel that sense of energy and that sense of experience so palpably in the city and I feel that similar sort of sense of experience in nature where it's like the whole world is there everything is happening around you you have to be outside of yourself in a certain degree and I'm someone who can get really lost inside their own head I've definitely struggled with dissociative situations in my life and just struggling to be present in the moment because sometimes the moment has been really hard to be present in and I think that being in environments like that really, really helped me. I guess this might sound like a dumb question, 
but hiking, does that mess with your illness at all? No, I'm very lucky that my bone disorder has not been an active problem in my life as an adult. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, I have a higher likelihood of fracturing than a typical person. But growing up, it was such a more pronounced problem. What my doctors have said is that because I was going through a series of growth spurts, it added additional strain onto my bones and it made those situations more difficult. But when I was diagnosed, there was four types of it within that category. And now there's 16. So there's a much more understanding of the variety of different severities. People might know it as the disorder that Mr. Glass has in the Unbreakable movies. <laughs> That's my bone disorder, which makes watching those movies pretty interesting. And they're like, oh, why is he an evil genius who wants to kill everyone? Because he breaks bones all the time. I'm like, well, I don't know. I didn't have that experience myself. But yeah, so for a lot of people in my position, like it will stunt your growth and you'll be incapacitated for the rest of your life. It can be a very severe disability. And I'm lucky to say that it outside of a few instances as an adult, it hasn't really impacted me. And I'm always grateful for that. When you are 11 years old and you're in a chair for nine months and you don't know if you're ever going to get out, you value being able to walk out the door and get the mail so much more. <laughs> I have a friend who, who lives in New Hampshire and I visited him a few years ago and there, he has a tiny mountain in his backyard. You can walk up and down it in about six hours. And we did it. And I took a picture of it when I was there at the top of the mountain and I have it hanging in my wall right behind me. Oh yeah. And just that. as a reminder that no matter how difficult the moment that you're in right now is, there's always tomorrow and we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And we just have to be grateful for that. And it, it's an inspiring thing for me that I was able to do that coming from where I was. That is super inspirational. Drifting to the main topic of the podcast, which is masculinity. And I hate sometimes putting a fine stamp on what the podcast is all about because <laughs> it really is just about stories and, and learning. But through your own personal journey, first of all, you were raised primarily by women. So I, I'm wondering mm -hmm. if the traditional masculine tropes, those ever really affected you in a sense of like, this is the person that I have to be. And I feel more or less masculine because of XYZ. Yeah, I definitely did feel that way, even though I was raised around mostly women, I think, and sometimes because of that. So the day that my dad left, I was four years old. They had been having problems, but when he left and he didn't come back, he sat me down. And this is probably my earliest memory. And he was like, I'm I'm going now and you have to be the man of the house. Which is like, why would you say that to a four-year-old? It's like yeah, insane. Seriously. And I internalized that deeply. And for my whole childhood, I felt very protective of my mother and my sister. And I was very controlling over what my sister's boyfriends were allowed to be, even though she was 16 seriously. and I was like nine, seven. She still uh, is annoyed about it. <laughs> <laughs> be like, you can't go out like that. Your dress is too short. I felt like I'm in charge in a certain way. Of course, my mom was always the one in charge and she was very in charge, but I felt this kind of responsibility for my family. And I think that that toxic idea of being the man of the house really sunk in and, and impacted me a lot growing up. And in terms of being queer, I've had some discussions with people about the whole masculine queer dynamic. I mean, look, I grew up with those outmoded methods of thinking as well. Coming from a generation after me, I wonder how that fits into how you state your queerness, how you are Alex, who also happens to be a queer person. 
Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I was very policed by other people because I was kind of effeminate and I didn't do sports and I was always friends with the girls in school. And I was also just a very sensitive kid and very articulate. I could always explain my feelings and could talk to other people about their feelings and all of that stuff gets coded as feminine when my voice never helped the situation. I was constantly teased for having a a high-pitched voice. I remember at one point being like 13 or 14 years old and being like, but I don't get it. Everybody says that I'm a fag and queer and or not queer, but like a fag and gay and a loser because I have a high pitched voice. But Prince has a high pitched voice and he's a sex magnet. Why is he allowed <laughs> to have a high pitched voice? I don't understand. I mean, of course, look, he had a couple a, things that I didn't. So, right. <laughs> I mean, when I was a kid, a lot of people thought Prince was gay. Yeah, but he but, was hooking up with all of the most beautiful women. Yeah, which again, just sort of goes to show you like those sort of outmoded thoughts of of masculinity. Here's this guy who is wearing tablecloth doily and singing in falsetto, and he's getting more women than you could ever get in your entire life. So, yeah, I, I think it just speaks to how basic some people's thought processes are. Anyway, I interrupted you. Go on. <laughs> no, but I think that's like a long way of me saying that me accepting my queerness was unexpectedly a gateway out of that toxic masculinity culture that I feel like a lot of my peers never got the opportunity to do. Like a lot of my straight peers, it took many years and some of them are still stuck in that to varying degrees because I think that once I realized that I had to own this part of me that the world said was not okay, that I had to be honest about that, that kind of liberated me into not worrying about what people thought to some degree, because so much of my gender being policed was about being afraid of being called gay. I can't listen to Britney Spears music anymore because then I'm going to be called gay. I can't watch Ally McBeal and tell people about it, even though it was my favorite show when I was nine years old, because they'll say I'm gay. (laughs) Alex, you are the first person in the history of the Detoxicity Podcast to bring up Ally McBeal ever. Wow, kids were I, watching Ally McBeal? Well, I was. No one else was. <laughs> and, I, and I quickly learned I wasn't supposed to talk about it. But I was because I was supposed to be asleep when it aired, but I would stay up and watch it because I had a TV in my room. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. If I heard somebody walking in the hall, I'd have to turn the TV off until I couldn't hear anybody anymore and then we turn it back on. I grew up watching soap operas with my mom and my grandma whenever I was home from school. My grandmother would watch me and we would just turn on channel seven at eight o'clock in the morning and we would just stay in front of the TV the whole entire day. (laughs) We would watch the entire lineup. I could tell you every single show as it aired all the way down to Oprah at 4 p.m. and we would eat and play with my toys and stuff and we would just watch all of the stories. And so yeah, it really fostered a love of soap opera and and then my mom loved Law and Order. And so I used to watch reruns of that with her. And so like Ally McBeal is like, it's soap opera and it's Law and Order. It's like, it's perfect. I'm going to just imagine that you're all my children. One Life to Live General Hospital trivia level is A++++. plus plus plus. Not to no. mention Port Charles, which was the General Hospital spinoff oh, that aired wow. at 1230. Yeah. And it started out as a spinoff of the show where it was about doctors and nurses, and then it got boring. So then they became a soap opera about vampires for some reason. What? And that was exciting. Yeah. <laughs> were they doctor vampires? Well, eventually, once they were being infected by the intruding vampires... There was, there was like a whole period of time where soap operas just went crazy into the supernatural way before Twilight and all that stuff, I might add. Wow. See, I yeah. 
that I learned something I had no idea before. I've heard of Port Charles, and I'm not a big soap opera guy, even though very similar to you, I grew up in a house that was primarily women, and I would come home from, from school, and there were definitely soap operas on. It just never never clicked with me. But uh, I vaguely remember Port Charles existing. I had no clue what it was about. And this whole general hospital crossover into vampire thing is very intriguing. It would be wild because they were part of the same universe. They took place in the same town in upstate New York. But by that time, General Hospital was just all about boiled over Sopranos ripoffs because the mob was like surprisingly large footprint in this small New York town. So they would have crossover events. And when you would tune in for the first half of it, it would be like vampires running around the corner of the hospital. And then they would hand off to General Hospital for the second half of the crossover. And it's all mobsters shooting each other up. And none of it is about hospitals, which always really confused me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is hilarious. But it really prepared me for the MCU, I have to say. <laughs> I clearly, clearly. <laughs> oh, man. And I mean, I don't know that there's a direct line into what you do now, but what you do now is helping people. Yeah. From a professional perspective, was that something that you always aspired to? Did you always want to do something that was... I guess, for lack of a better term, a noble type profession. Well, there's not a lot of humility to describing yourself as part of a noble profession. (laughs) You don't have to be humble, Alex. (laughs) I was raised Catholic. I'm supposed to be humble. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Good point. (laughs) But no, I always wanted to be of service to the community. That was always really important to me. I went to a prep high school where everyone was really competing for the top schools and the top positions. And there was a lot of very wealthy and powerful people around me. And I was not in that position at all. And none of that stuff really mattered to me as much. I never knew what my life was going to be like outside of work because of my queerness and because of other issues. And so I made a decision pretty early on of I need to make what I actually do for a living matter because Mm. I need to be able to have a part of my life that can really nurture me and give me sustenance and giving back to other people was that. And so for a while, I thought about becoming a, a, a psychologist and then I really thought I would go into law school, but I didn't want to go to law school. I just wanted to get into politics. And that was the way you were supposed to get into politics. And when I was in college, I really fell in love with the idea of constituent services, which is basically like if you're an elected official, you have an office. And part of what that office does is help your community that you represent navigate kind of like the government infrastructure, right? So if you have a problem like getting a visa or immigration stuff or business stuff, whatever, like you can go to your elected official and ask for help and they can write letters on your behalf and they can lobby for you and things like that. And I really liked that. And I thought that's great because I don't want to be an elected official. I don't have the ego for it. (laughs) You have to be a narcissist on some level to be an elected official. And And we need those people. Because we need those people. Yes, exactly. Yes. But what I found doing internships in college was there's a whole team of people behind that person who actually does the hard work of helping actual people and making real differences. And so that's the thing that I really wanted to do. But while I was trying to figure out how to do that, because there's very limited options in a career for that regard, there are only so many elected officials out there in your area. uh, I started substitute teaching just as a part-time job that had flexible hours. And I kept getting placed in special ed classrooms as a substitute aide. And I realized I had a very high 
capacity to work with these kids and a lot of the other people around me didn't. And it just felt like a calling sort of moment. This is where I can actually make a difference. And this feels really amazing to be able to help these kids. And so I just leaned into that and I completely switched professional directions and just fell right into that completely. And from there, I I went from working in schools to doing behavioral therapy and, uh, and working with kids and families. And I don't think I would have been able to survive the last five years of how toxic and terrible the world has been without having that as a huge part of my life. Because no matter how awful I felt about so many people who were just so happy to tell you how horrible and toxic they were, I was able to put my head down and go to work every day and know that I was making a real impact on at least this person's life and this family's life. And that kind of helped me get through a lot of really hard times when the world just felt completely insane. I need that. Because like, <laughs> I've been feeling lately like the world is almost like in, in, improbably insane. It's unjustifiably insane. And maybe- it's too much to take in. If you reckon with the sheer insanity of it and the scope and the scale of it, I don't know if you're anything like me, it's enough to just make you not want to leave your room. And yeah. so then you need something else to make you leave your room. And for me, that's helping other people. I know that's that like awesome. sounds so Pollyannish and stuff, but it's true. It's the thing that gets me through it. Again, we need people like that. We need that in the world to to offset all the other BS that's out there. Helping people is important, more important than anything. Going back to what you were saying about community, people being there for one another, people supporting one another, people caring for one another is absolutely, that is what's going to save the world. Community is what is going to save the world. And as things fracture further and further, I think we're going to get to a point where, like, I'm a big believer in intentional community. And I think that in the dystopian future, (laughs) people are going to have to forge intentional communities to just have that sense of belonging. And it just doesn't come naturally. In what I do, I have the opportunity to go into people's homes and into people's lives and really help them in a direct way. And what I see when I do that is just how common these people's experiences are and yet how isolated they feel every single time. They feel so alone and they feel so overcome by guilt and shame and just self-doubt. And meanwhile, they don't realize that I'm walking into seven, eight, ten houses with people feeling the exact same exact way. Same way. And, and it's just like if all of those people could just come together and they can't because I can't bring them together, that would be a HIPAA violation. But <laughs> it would just make it so much easier for everybody to know that everyone is out there struggling with something. And the thing that you feel so alone and isolated with, so many other people feel that way. And if we could just connect those people together then it just makes it easier to get through. I mean, my best experiences in treatment for my own mental health has been in group therapy settings where everybody is just sitting around a a room and feeling like they're having the absolute worst experience of their entire life. And they feel so cut off from everyone that they know. And there's so much shame and stigma around mental health in our society, unfortunately. And that makes getting access to treatment so much harder. And to just have a room full of people in that same experience, having that together, is just so powerful. I wonder what can be done on a grand scale to not necessarily foster a sense of community, but to ingrain in the people that they're not alone and that there is community available. I, I don't know what that's going to take because 
it feels like such an obvious thing that, that people should realize. It's so hard, though. I'm a millennial, right? I graduated from high school in 2008. So I was very bullish on the opportunity of social media as being that for the world. And then, of course, I think it did do that for a lot of people, but it also brought together a lot of terrible people and made them feel seen and validated yeah. in ways that were actually terrible and bad and and not good for anyone. And then they learned how to weaponize that to hurt people instead. And that has made me feel depleted a bit as a result. I don't think that social media is all bad. It still has that potential to do that, to build communities beyond individual geography. And I think it does serve that purpose for a lot of people. Like I said, it just brings together all of the bad things too. And so it's hard to contend with that sometimes. Understood. Absolutely. Like we wouldn't be doing this right now if it right. wasn't if for, it wasn't social, for media. social media. We met on Twitter. Yep. It's interesting to have to deal with the duality, right? Or the dichotomy that is social media because I've made so many friends and learned so much about myself through yeah. through social media, but also it's the bane of my existence. Absolutely. It, it activates my misanthropy. And so it's kind of like, man, if I could just take the good from this, it would be great. Or if I could take the good from this and figure out a way to really mitigate the bad, that'd be great. Yeah. But I haven't really figured out a way to do that yet. I think it ultimately then just becomes like anything else in life where nothing in life is purely good or purely bad. Sure. And we have to make the choice sometimes. I have teenage clients who have a really hard time with negative thoughts. And the thing that I try to communicate to them is that the bad is there and it's real. And if people try to say, no, everything is good, you should reject that because that's not true. But if you spend all of your time focusing on the negative, you ignore all opportunities for positive. And you think you're doing that to protect yourself, right? Because if I'm prepared for the bad things all the time and I'm looking for it all the time, then it can't hurt me. Hurt you, but right. it does hurt you anyway. So now all you've done is you've taken the opportunity to have something to counterbalance that, right? To be that counterbalance force of, yes, there is bad, but there is also good. And you're stripping yourself of that coping tool that's so important and you're only left with the bad. And that's a choice that we have to make for ourselves to not deny the bad, but to not deny the good either, right? We have to do both. And that's something that we have to teach ourselves because I don't think our brains do that by themselves. We're programmed to find patterns and then make generalizations based off of those patterns. So if you see three bad things in a row, everything is bad that everything day. Everything is bad. And it's like, no, some things good happened. And maybe the good things weren't as good as the bad things were bad, but both things happened. And we have to be able to except that both things happened in order to live. Otherwise, we'll just get beaten down by the world. It is not afraid to give you the bad stuff all on its own. You don't need to look for that. That's right. Wow. I needed this conversation, Alex. Was there anything else you needed to add? The only thing that I guess we didn't talk that much about is my career as an amateur podcaster <laughs> and how fulfilling that has been. Is there such a thing as an amateur podcaster? I feel like as long as well, you have one podcast, you're a professional. <laughs> And well, there's such a thing as a professional podcaster, and those are people who quit their jobs so they could continue to just podcast. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but that's a very select few. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, that's the 1%. Yes. I started with one podcast with two friends. Actually, they had a podcast, and I invaded it and took <laughs> over it, which they were happy to let me do because that meant I was doing all the hard work. <laughs> so they're like, sure, you could keep taking over. And I did that for a few years before I got connected to the pop break. And since then, it's just been this really great resource for me to like express creativity because it's so hard to, as an adult, find the chances to 
be creative. And that is a part of who I am. I love photography and I, my room is filled with photographs of nature and the city that I've taken over the years. I love that, but it's like you get so little opportunity as when your life is so busy. So having podcasts to just give me an opportunity to perform and edit and put things out into the world has been fun. And I feel like I've been able to build a little bit of a community with all the podcasters that we have. I've recruited people from all around the country and that we're working on stuff together. And it's really nice. It's really fun. That's awesome. You got to give me some tea here. How is Bill to work with? Oh, he's excellent. You can, you can I, be, I wanna, you can be I, honest. <laughs> I'd love to make a joke about him being horrible, but I can't because he's just the best. He's Damn such it. a teddy bear and he's so supportive and he's become such a great friend over the last couple of years. So yeah, uh, I have no complaints. The only complaint is that he's too hard on himself. So, <laughs> Child, I've been trying to tell him that for the last <laughs> 10 years, 15 years, however long we've known each other. Well, I'm added to the chorus then. Yeah, one, one day it'll crack through that big gray skull of his. <laughs> Big shout out to Alex. Thank you so much for being on the show and for sharing your super inspiring story with us. I am very sad that you weren't able to provide any tea on Bill and say anything to insult him. But you know what? I can do that myself. So uh, next time I see him, I'll, I'll give him a punch and say it was from you or something like that. Anyway, anyway, you can find Alex on Twitter at Media Thinkings if you want to follow him. And, of course, you can find his writing and editing and podcasting prowess on full display at popbreak.com. Uh, I'm going to double-check the URL to make sure it's the same as it was uh, back in the day when I was, eh, I guess I'm still a part of the, the, a part of the group there. You can find his writings at thepopbreak.com. That is thepopbreak.com. Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually. Patreon.com slash detoxicity pod you get access to exclusive episodes you get episodes a little earlier than the general public you get a cool ass sticker lots of stuff once again patreon.com slash detoxicity pod quick shout out to calvin williams for providing the music and uh doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace <laughs>